Welcome. <clears throat> it's a cold night outside. Let's, uh, I invite you to come forward, bring your chairs forward. Everybody uh, move up. Let's, if you'd rather be back, that's okay, but I'm inviting those that would like to come up and form a circle. Bring the chairs if you'd like. <clears throat> Nice to have, it's like when you're building a fire, you don't want to have too much spaces between the logs. You've got to reflect the heat. Well, my name is Jim Bronson, and I'm a member of this community for about five and a half years. Been um, <clears throat> following a um, Buddhist-related path for quite a while. I, when I was in graduate school, I had the good fortune to do a meditation course. And it really made all the difference in my life to have a sense of in inside there is um, there's a life. And uh, so that's been a powerful force in bringing me to my thoughts for this evening. We sit here on a December 19th night. Uh, I think uh, cold outside. Uh, people from the East Coast, I'm sure, wouldn't agree, but uh, this is cold and it's dark. We're two days away from the darkest time of the year. <clears throat> December 21st is the solstice. And traditionally, people regarded the solstice as a real milestone. Uh, there was a concern that the sun may not come back, or that if it does come back, it won't be the same. And the wish that life as we knew it back last summer and during the harvest would go again. So this is a tough time. We know a lot more than traditional people did uh, in ancient times about what happens and where the sun comes from and what we can rely on. But in some ways, we don't know a lot. We don't know what next year holds. We're pretty sure that We'll have an equinox in March and a solstice in June and another equinox in September. But what world events will that returning sun shine on? And what will be here next December? It's a time of concern. Pema Chodron has a phrase that when it's a dark time and chaos reigns in the land, that it's time for those who have awareness and who value awareness to develop a rational, reasonable, sane way of facing chaos. Bankruptcies are up, unemployment's up, 
This is a time where there doesn't seem to be a lot of joy, and yet we have the Christmas season that's coming, and, and traditionally in Western society, the Christmas season is a season of light and birth and uh, new opportunities. So tonight I thought I would reflect just a little bit on the Buddhist side of a season of light and look at what some of the teachings are and some of the thoughts of teachers that uh, follow in the tradition of Buddhist thought about how we deal with a dark time and how we deal with a time when there's a lot of uncertainty. So first I want to say a little bit about what it feels like. I do some work with grief counseling, and so I end up talking to people that have lost somebody in their family due to suicide or homicide or um, people who have lost a coworker at work or students who have had one of their fellow students uh, lose a grandfather or have a pet die or whatever. Lots of reasons for loss. And uh, one of the things that people always say is that the holidays are the worst time of all because this season is a season where it's so apparent that things aren't the same. That, That when everybody gathers at the table for the holiday feast, there's a sense of who's not there. And if that who's not there recently departed, it's especially hard. So this is a a writing that came across my desk. It's called Good Grief, It's the Holidays. And this is from a, a pastor who works with people that are dealing with their challenges. And he says, at this time, Will we say and do the right things, or will we fall apart? When the family comes together, what will happen? Will somebody say something that will make everyone upset? How will we get through all of this? All this builds to moments and forces us into a corner from which we would just as soon forget the whole mess and hide out. Why bother? Does anybody ever feel that at the holiday? Why bother? We have a poet in the Sangha, Stephen Browning, and he's published a very beautiful book of poetry. And if you haven't seen it, I really recommend that you find it. He not only wrote the poetry, but he produced a lot of the art that goes along with it, including the cover, which is um, hand-produced, Um, kind of uh, fabric-covered paper. And then these beautiful poems, really heartfelt poems. One of them he calls Night Swimming, and it talks about a time when he was in a southern climate. He often goes to Mexico, so I imagine it may have been the Gulf of Mexico or somewhere down. uh, He mentions the name Um, and he's talking about a time when uh, there could have been a lot of joy and fun and yet there was some difficulty that came up 
So I'll just I'll read it to you. The poem is called Night Swimming. And it says, Nothing is measured in the moving sea. Without reference points, the beaches shift. Footprints appear, lose definition, and are gone. So nothing is measured in the moving sea. And then he tells about the scene, what happened in the scene. He says, the water is dark, but, from, but lights from the cliff glare down. Can they see us, do you think? Can they see our bodies meet under the water, our heads drawn together? They order us out, pistols drawn, boots wet in the sand, shaming us in our nakedness like dogs stuck together. We were swimming, senores, just swimming on this pleasant night. Surely all of you have had sometimes that you have done the same. So it's that experience of a time that could be so joyful, a swim, a midnight swim in deep water with someone that you care about. And then somebody discovers you and shines a bright light and, and creates a sense of shame. And uh, so this is, this is that challenge. How do we deal with something that could be so nice, a holiday feast, a swim in the dark, and then something goes wrong? When I was back at Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, um, sitting a six-week silent meditation, the only communication, uh, everything was silent, was on a bulletin board. And so that's where you found out about changes in the program or whatever. And also, it's where people would periodically put some writing. And so I wrote down a piece of writing that someone put up one day. And this is, um, usually these were things that just emerged from people's meditative process. And this says, fresh like the sky where the wind blows apart beautiful dreams and changes everything forever. Fresh like the sky where the wind blows apart beautiful dreams and changes everything forever. I really like that because it gives the feeling that we encounter so much in Buddhist thought about impermanence and uh, dreams. Even the dreams are blown apart. You can't even hold on to your dreams. Your dreams are changing. Everything changes. But it starts with fresh. Fresh, like what is left after the dreams are blown apart and everything's changed. So in my search for what to do when everything has changed, what to do when the midnight swim gets interrupted, what to do when the holiday feast becomes difficult. I turned to this book called Japanese Death Poems. 
And uh, it's an interesting process. It's actually a tradition among Zen practitioners in Japan that if you're a very, very good and strong practitioner, before you die, uh, you write a poem to leave behind. And in fact, just before you die. So you don't do it weeks ahead. This is like moments before death comes, you keep an open mind and then you just write what what comes at that point. So it's not a well-constructed poem. It's not thought of in advance. It's just what's present as you are moments from dying. What's present for you? What is in your consciousness? So some of these, I think, are quite remarkable. I'll share a couple of them. This one is of a man who died in the 27th day of the first month of 1568 at the age of 89. He says, My whole life long I've sharpened my sword, and now, face to face with death, I unsheath it, and lo, the blade is broken. Alas. Another one. This man died in the twelfth day of the tenth month of 1333 at the age of 81. All doctrines split asunder. Zen teaching cast away. Four score years and one. The sky now cracks and falls. The earth cleaves open. In the heart of the fire lies a hidden spring. So I really like that one because it has the feeling of, to me, of Stephen Browning's poem that there's... uh, interruption, but there's also a freshness, a a freshness due to seeing clearly. The earth cleaves open. In the heart of the fire lies a hidden spring. And the Buddhist teaching is that in the heart of our fire lies our hidden spring, lies the the wisdom and the compassion that's always there. And true enough, probably the fires are always there and the clouds are always being blown apart and lights are being shown at the wrong time. But still, there is this hidden spring, this freshness. This person died on the third day of the eighth month of 1723, at the age of 67. He says, Now that my storehouse has burned down, nothing conceals the moon. So again, I, this the storehouse is gone, but ah, it's new. Something new is here. I really love these. It's something that you can just pick up and flip open and always find some inspiration from. 
So the question is, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Or is there really freshness when the clouds blow apart? We have a group here called uh, Dharma Friends. And you may have joined on some Dharma Friends events. Uh, there's lots of things, potlucks and poetry readings. And um, my sweetie Judith and I last winter had the fun of being part of a ski retreat. And so this was in the heart of uh, the dark time of year, and it was very cold. And uh, we did some skiing. And then uh, on the last night, we were going to celebrate together. And so we drove down to Truckee. We were staying up near Donner Summit. And on the way down, in the fading light of the day, you could see a helicopter flying on, on a cliff over by the ski area that um, there's a cliff that's right on the north side of Sugar Bowl ski area. So anybody that's ever skied at Sugar Bowl, you know that most of the skiing goes down pretty well-established uh, trails. But every once in a while, uh, adventurous people like to get off those trails and go explore. And apparently what had happened was that some people had done some exploring over by this cliff, and the, the helicopters were looking in the middle of the cliff. Very concerning. So we went down and we had dinner <clears throat> and came back. And as we came back, it was nighttime, total darkness, and there were three helicopters. And they, they were shining their spotlights and they were moving very slowly. You could see them hovering in front of the cliff and the spotlights just very slowly shining as they looked at every nook and cranny on this cliff. And so the time in between was about three hours, and uh, they hadn't found whoever it was they were looking for in that three hours. And so we drove on, not knowing what was to become of the search. Now, what, what's the story with these people? And fortunately, I um, got a, an email from Sugar Bowl for some reason. And so I sent the person that sent me an email a question, I said, you know, there was a rescue la a week ago when we were up there, and I'd like to know what happened. <clears throat> and they said that two people had uh, wandered off the cliff and had actually fallen partway down the cliff and were later found that night after five hours of searching with these helicopters. And uh, the experience to me was this, this feeling of... Um, the darkness and using the light to penetrate the darkness and amazingly having a successful result and, uh, and really appreciating how amazing human compassion is that you, know, you can do something foolish. They were two snowboarders and they were uh, going in an area that was definitely out of bounds and they knew it was out of bounds. And when they hadn't returned, somebody raised the alarm. And on the basis of this alarm, the ski area mobilized three helicopters to be out there searching for them and found them. So uh, I thought, wow, that's an example of how you probably, you know, if you really look at it, you did some stupid things, and yet you were saved. 
that compassion emerged. In the Buddha's teachings, there's a word for the renunciate or the the monastic. And uh, the word is bhikkhu, B-H-I-K-K-H-U. And it's from the Pali language, which is an ancient language of India. And in Pali, bhikkhu, which refers to a monk or a renunciate, has a literal meaning of fear seer. So when a monastic enters that path, they are thought to be able to see through their fear or to experience fear and still to see. One of the books that has inspired me a lot is Going on Being, this book by Mark Epstein. And he titles it Going on Being for good reason. Um, The thought being that there are many uh, forces opposing our being. He's a therapist and he encounters people all the time struggling. And yet people do go on being. They, they, they raise the search when it seems like there may be no search. Uh, they show up to make good things happen when it's hard to do. People do go on being. And so um, why do we go on being? What, 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 is, what do we access when we go on being? He says, he, he talks about um, a time in meditation when we come face to face with our fear, our lack of certainty, uh, the groundlessness of life. Um, we heard it in one of the uh, poems, a death poem about... Uh, when there's no Zen teacher in the land, when there when there's no teaching that works. And he says, if we meditate long enough, we come face to face with this time. What once had seemed so solid and comforting and desirable and stable now appears as nothing. Wherever a meditator turns, he only finds more dissolution. Death is everywhere. There's a description of this in the Vasuti Maga, uh, some of the sacred texts inspired by the Buddha. And the description talks about the dawning of insight. It is said that the dawning of insight in the world is experienced in the form of great terror. That terror leads to the insight. And the way they refer it, they refer to it in the Vasudhi Maga is lions, tigers, leopards, bears, hyenas, spirits, ogres, fierce bulls, savage dogs, rut-maddened wild elephants, 
hideous, venomous serpents, thunderbolts, charnel grounds, battlefields, flaming coal pits. They all appear to the timid mind who wants to live in peace. Interesting thought about meditation. I don't know if your meditation has ever quite assumed that remarkable quality. It's all in there. Uh, It's... uh, one of my favorite teachers is Stephen Levine, and he's spent a lot of years with people who have been facing death or dying. And just being with him, you get a sense of how he's at peace with the process. He's been through the process many times with other people and held people's hands and been there. And somehow he's accessed a compassion that doesn't go away when there's elephants uh, rutting and and fires and spirits and he uh, he's a fierce seer. When the fear is there, he still sees. And uh, so, to me, that's the promise of meditation. When Mark Epstein talks about the insight that comes from this, that this is really the promise of our practice. As hard as practice seems sometimes, that at the heart of it is this wisdom and this compassion that is there always, even in the midst of the fire, even in the midst of the uh, being lost. One other piece that follows on from this. He says, Out of this vision of groundlessness comes not resignation, but a kind of benevolent acceptance, a profound equanimity that understands and accepts the essential instability of all things. So I think that's what our time of year is about. It's a a chance to be with the wisdom and be with the compassion even when things aren't as we would wish. There's a a publication called Turning Wheel that comes from the uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And uh, it's a really wonderful publication. It tells stories about how people are implementing Buddhist teaching in the world. And uh, there's stories of people working in hospices and people working in various ways of life. One of the recent stories was about a man named Paul Haller, who has spoken here a number of times. And uh, if you've been here, I don't know, I can't remember the last time that Paul was here. I think it was last summer. But he often comes. He'll be here three or four times a year. He's currently director of outreach for the Zen Center in San Francisco. He's a native of Ireland. And... um, has been very drawn to working with the situation in Ireland. 
And so he's traveled back there four or five times in uh, the past couple of years. And his wish is to, in some way, use his Zen practice as a force to help the resolution of these conflicts. And uh, the conflicts over there started many hundreds of years ago. And in those many hundreds of years, everybody, uh, nearly everybody in the country has experienced some disaster at the hands of the other faction. And uh, they recently, about, um, was it last spring, or about a year ago, got to a point where there was a treaty signed and there was a plan set afoot to uh, move toward uh, combining both factions and having one government be in control. And uh, the, the government that was to be in control was to be a local government rather than the government that is in control now and was in the past, which is based in Westminster in London. And so there was a a brief time when these factions in in Northern Ireland were able to come to the same table and to say, even though we've had all of this loss in the past and all of these grievances, we nevertheless have decided that we're going to come together and work together and it lasted about six months, and it's now fallen apart again. And Paul wrote an article in the recent Turning Wheel that talks about why it fell apart. And he said that uh, in his way of seeing it, what's happened is that um, the younger people, the, the people who are 18, 19, 20 years old, who have known nothing but conflict all their lives, were the ones that, after the peace treaty was signed, went to the streets and still tried to act out in a way to um, feel better, to get over the suffering of their grievances. And so uh, even though a large part of the population wanted to be together, there was violence that was created by these younger people who haven't known peace. And so Paul's work has been to um, have sittings, meditations, where people are invited, and he particularly invites key people from both sides, from uh, both the Protestant and the Catholic side. And just in sitting together, his goal is to help people move to a new place where that they can... Uh, see beyond this violence. And I brought along the turning wheel that Paul's article is in because there was a a few things that he wrote about that I thought are so good, talking about how you deal with a time of darkness. This has been 300 years of darkness that they've had in, in trying to arrive at some togetherness. And uh, Paul says, what is it that makes it possible to go beyond our conditioning? What opens our eyes and opens our hearts after years and years of grievances, after all the dreams have been blown apart? He says, what is it to live a human life 
What is it to be your own person, to live in a land where there are no Zen teachers, where there is no abiding wisdom that can say, let me tell you exactly what to do and what to think? What is the expression of your compassion? When do you plan to live? Next year? Next life? So he asks that question, and he says, In Zen, we take each moment to be completely in the middle of what is, to bear witness with not knowing mind and open heart. So that, to me, goes back to this Buddhist teaching, that to bear witness, to be a fear-seer, to be with what is and not manipulate it, not change it, not resist it. That is the key, and we do that in our practices. We have that opportunity. Every time we get quiet and we open to just what is inside of us, we have that opportunity to access the compassion and the wisdom. So I think I'm winding toward an answer to the question, what do you do when the dreams are blown apart and when the spotlight is shown inappropriately, you bear witness. You bear with not knowing and you have your open heart. The Christmas story is uh, interesting to me because, um, I don't know, I have, uh, it's been quite a while since I've really celebrated Christmas heartfully. I've been much more drawn to Buddhist thought. And at the time of the original Christmas story, of course, uh, Buddhist teaching had been in the world for about 500 years. And so there was a lot of knowledge about uh, what the Buddha had taught. And it always has struck me that the Christmas story uh, kind of misses that point. Uh, the Christmas story about the wise men coming from the East. The three wise men come, and they come bearing gifts. And the gifts they bear, according to the story, are material gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And it's it strikes me that, first of all, why is it three wise men why isn't it three wise people? Uh, you know, we, we know the patriarchy has had the, a sway for a lot of years, and particularly back then. But wouldn't it be nice to rewrite that story and have three wise people, and maybe not even just wise, but three wise and compassionate people come from the East? And so if they came from the East and they arrived at this special birth, I can imagine that they would bring gifts and not particularly gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but maybe the gifts of a loving heart and an open mind. Maybe the gift of being with what is. And I can imagine if... I were the Christ child, that I'd be looking for something like that. I'd be facing a life of great challenge and 
uh, and I'd be wanting something that could shore me up when things got hard. And uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, of course, uh, you know, it's probably the last thing that a baby needs. Uh, <laughs> you can think of all the things that a baby needs, and gold, frankincense, and myrrh, isn't it? So, anyway, I, in my mind, rewrite uh, the story, the parable. And then I thought, well, what parables are there in Buddhism that are teaching parables that are similar to the Christmas story, but have a Buddhist flavor? <clears throat> and I found a couple. And so I'm going to share a couple here as we wind toward the, the uh, solstice. This is from the Middle-Length Discourses of the Buddha, a translation of the Majjhima Nikaya, uh, which means just the Middle-Length Discourses. And this is a, an amazing book. It, uh, these discourses have been translated into English for about 100 years, but it was very difficult English. And uh, just recently, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi has uh, put... Uh, a more modern, understandable uh, translation out for us. And so that's what we have here. And he's actually, I think, coming here. I think he uh, is coming to do uh, some teachings in the springtime. Does anybody remember seeing a notice about that? Yeah. Anyway, I, I, if uh, I have heard that he is, I encourage you to take advantage of that. So this is a story <clears throat> um, that the Buddha told when he was asked, um, what is it that is most essential for a practitioner? And uh, in this case, he calls a practitioner a bhikkhu. He was, at that time, most practitioners were not lay practitioners like we are. They were monastics. So he says... A bhikkhu is capable of breaking out, of dealing with what is, is capable of enlightenment and attaining supreme security from bondage. Suppose there were a hen with eight to ten or twelve eggs, which she had covered, incubated, and nurtured properly. Even though she did not wish, oh, my chicks may pierce their shells with the points of their claws and beaks and hatch out safely. Yet, the chicks are capable of piercing their shells with the points of their claws and beaks and hatching out safely. So, too, a practitioner who thus possesses all of their mind and all of their heart with enthusiasm is capable of breaking out, capable of enlightenment, capable of attaining the supreme security from bondage. So a little parable about breaking out, breaking our shell. We do possess what it takes to break through the shell. Another um, parable that I like a lot is the simile of the raft. And uh, this was uh, oftentimes in the texts someone will ask a question and then there's the response from the Buddha. In this case, uh, the question was, how can I 
most effectively deal with your teachings. You've given so much in terms of teachings, all of these different teachings. How can I get just the core, just the most important thing? And so this is what he says. Suppose that a man in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge. Then he thought, there is a great expanse of water whose near shore is dangerous and fearful, whose farther shore is safe and free from fear. But there is no ferry boat. Suppose I collect grass, twigs, branches, and leaves and bind them together into a raft. And supported by that raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the other shore. And then the man collected grass and twigs, brought them together into a raft, and supported by the raft, making an effort with his hands and feet, he got safely across to the other shore. Then when he got across and he had arrived at the far shore, he might think thus, this raft has been very helpful to me since, supported by it and making an effort with my hands and feet, I got safely across to the other shore. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it on my shoulder and then go wherever I want. Now, Bikus, what do you think by doing so would that man be doing what should be done with the raft? The answer is no, venerable sir. When you know the truth and the way and to be similar to a raft, you should abandon even the teachings. How much more so things contrary to the teachings? So, uh, this is one of the most remarkable things about Buddhist teachings to me is that the recommendation is to abandon the teachings, to use them at the appropriate time and in the appropriate way, and then to let them go and not to hang on to them. Uh, I think it's a, a remarkable teaching to, to say, use only what works and then let it go. Don't preserve things just to preserve things. Don't hang on. <clears throat> The last parable um, that I think is one of my absolute favorites is um, the story of the mustard seed. And it's a a really beautiful teaching. It's a, a story that talks about a woman who's experienced the death of her son. And she is really broken up by the, the loss of her son so much so that she just really can't cope with life. She can't think of anything else but uh, how to deal with the loss and how to dispose of him. And <clears throat> so I'll start partway through. <clears throat> it says, Wherever people encountered her, they said, Where did you ever... Oh, let's see. Where did you ever meet with medicine for the dead? Here she was 
looking for some way to deal with the death of her son. So she was looking for medicine for the dead. So saying, they clapped their hands and laughed in derision. She has not the slightest idea what they meant. Now, a certain wise man saw her and thought, this woman must have been driven out of her mind by sorrow for her son. But medicine for her, no one else is likely to know. The sage of the ten forces may know. Woman, as far as medicine for your son, there is no one else who knows. So go ask the sage. This man speaks the truth. So she goes to the sage and he says, I will give you the medicine that will take care of the death of your son, that will heal you and your grief. But before I do that, you must go to every house in the village and ask for a mustard seed if that house has had no death. And if the house has had death, then you must pass on and go to somewhere else. Bring me a mustard seed from every house that has not experienced a death or loss in this village. So she goes searching. And she goes to house after house. And of course what she finds is in every house there's been a loss of some sort. They've lost a grandfather, a a dear one of some kind. And so she comes back and she really is empty-handed. says, overcome with emotion, she went outside of the city, carried her son to the burning ground and holding him by her arm. She said, dear little son, I thought you alone had been overtaken by this thing, which men call death, but you are not the only one death has overtaken. This is the law common to all mankind. So saying, she put her son on the burning ground and she let him go. And then she sang the following stanza. No law, no law, no law of a single house is this. Of all the world and all the worlds everywhere, this is the only law that things are impermanent. So, to me, sweet teachings, and uh, but not... Purely sweet, not not sweet in the sense that everything turns out the way you'd like, but sweet in the sense that even when things don't turn out the way you would like, that there are some amazing resources that we have available, and we can access these resources through our practice. The Song of Zen, a poem by Hakun, says, How boundless and free is the sky of awareness, how bright the full moon of wisdom, how warm the covering of compassion. Truly is anything missing now? True freedom is right here before our eyes, this very place, this very body. So at this time of darkness, when we think about the year that's happened and the year that we're going toward, may we find in our practice the wisdom, the moon, the full moon of wisdom, the sky of awareness, the covering of compassion, 
May we find those because those are the only permanent resources we have. Everything else comes and goes. So as a last little pass at the troubles that life brings us at this time, the dark time of the year, I uh, offer you a little bit of humor about this. This comes from the New Yorker magazine. And uh, it's uh, a comic report on a study that uh, has Buddhist overtones. So we'll finish on a humorous note. It says, according to a study just released by scientists at Duke University, life has been found too hard. Years of tests, experiments, and complex computer simulations now provide solid statistical evidence in support of old folk sayings that describe life as, quote, a veil of sorrows, quote, a woeful trial, a kick in the teeth, not worth living, and so on. Before the study was undertaken, researchers had assumed by positive logic that life could not be that bad. As the data accumulated, however, they provided incontrovertible proof that life is actually worse than most living things can stand. In a personal note, in an afterward, researchers stated that statistically speaking, life is just too much. And as yet, they have no plausible theory how anything gets through it at all. (laughs) Well, I wish all of you well as you go into this season of great hope and great expectation and uh, and planning for the new and uh, wish all the resources of the awareness and the wisdom and the compassion and wish that all to be there as our old year gets blown apart and the new year gets formed. So thank you very much for your attention. And uh, many good wishes for the new year.